Listening to Grace Geltman and Weld on the Hammer Factor. Take it away, boys. All right, are you guys ready? Yeah, Asher takes all his clothes off now, like at a moment's notice for any reason. <laughs> like if you start laughing at him, his clothes comes off because he goes, he goes to like the next level. And so Aiden and Asher fight with these surf, these swords, like these foam swords, all the time, like constantly. And so Asher came up with a wrestling name. He calls himself the Nude Dude. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and he'll be fighting with Aiden with a sword, and then all his clothes come off, and then he's fighting naked with Aiden and a sword. This could be out in the front street. This could be in front of my arm. This could be anywhere. His clothes are off. <laughs> oh no! Here comes the nude dude. He says, "I'm the nude dude." <laughs> well, welcome to Hammer Factor, episode number twenty-three. My name is John Grace, and uh, thanks for listening. We got an incredible show lined up. On the horn, we have Lewis Geltman, North Fork Champion and Policy Counsel for the Outdoor Alliance. Welcome, Lewis. How's it going? Going good. All right. Lewis is going to fill us in on the uh, little white race that just happened last weekend. Can't wait to hear about that. And then we have John Weld, co-owner of Immersion Research and Whitewater Legend and father of the new dude. <laughs> Nude dude, right nude dude. where you are. <laughs> hey guys, uh, <clears throat> welcome to the show. So, what's going on? Um, well, I don't know. We're gonna I, later on. We're gonna talk to. Uh, we're gonna talk about the new Liquid Logic Creek boat, which is getting some attention in the marketplace. Some, <laughs> some good. Some maybe some more satirical. But I want to say right <laughs> now, unless. Unless the boat, unless the creek boat paddles pretty much like a nine-foot wave hopper, I'm not going to like it. <laughs> Can you elaborate? It needs to have a hull like a wave hopper, basically. Basically, like camber instead of rocker. That's right. Doesn't turn. <laughs> You're going to have to lean like way over to the left side to turn right. <laughs> That's what I want. <laughs> like a, a seat specifically designed to concentrate all of the forces directly on your lower spine. <laughs> uh, That's right. Well, I mean, I don't think it looks like that from the picture. So no, it does not. You're probably no, not going to like it. I think the 9R was a step in the right direction, but... Uh, I've yet to see my 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 uh, boat of my dreams yet. Well, what about like a Noah Jetty? Have you checked that out before? It's got like a nice V in the bow and the stern. The first time it's I like paddled nice the green, <laughs> first time I paddled the green was in a Noah Jetty. That's going to date me a little bit right there. It was like the second year after uh, John John Kennedy and was it J- Kennedy and Visnius, right? Tom Visnius. Mm-hmm. They ran it. We ran it at two hundred percent. I didn't know it was two hundred percent, but I know the notch was full of water. And we got there, and we're like, this is Gorilla, I think. <laughs> and we're all sitting there looking at it. It's me and this British guy named Alan Roberts, another guy named Boomer. And we're sitting there looking at it, and we're like, they run this? <laughs> and we're like, yeah, I guess they do run it. And so we ran it. I've never been so scared in my life. <laughs> but there was no notch. It was completely full of water. And then years later, when I went back to run it, I was really scared of Gorilla. I was like, oh, no, I have to run that thing again. Oh, no, 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 no. And I got there. 
and it was like you know summer levels it was a spencer cook and i was like wait a minute <laughs> this is not the same thing i remember at all yeah no jetty there you go so there we go there's my uh geezer geezer <laughs> alert. down memory lane <laughs> yeah, that's it. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> let's talk about uh stuff is happening now um lewis what do you have on the policy front and just go ahead and take the lead after that onto uh little white race report um policy stuff um man it's been a while since we've recorded eh? yeah but i would guess that you guys have all seen about uh uh secretary zinke's review of national monuments designated over the last 20 years including bears ears recently designated um, basically the Trump administration is looking to roll back protections on national monuments designated over the last 20 years. Uh, this is a big deal. Um, whether they actually have the legal authority to do this is questionable at best, but there's a comment period right now. So if you would like to share your thoughts with department of interior about their ideas for rolling back protections on public lands. Um, comments would be extremely helpful. Um, we have like an action alert and some more explication up on outdooralliance.org. Check it out. Get involved. More to come. Um, so what do you say to someone who who feels like, uh, you know, the, the federal government just came in and took their land in Utah for this bear's ear? Well, I guess the, the um, first thing is that, and they feel like these, it's it's government overreach. What do you feel? How do you, what would you say to them? So the first thing is that all of these designations are on existing public land. This is not like taking private property or state land or anything like that and turning it into a national monument. Like so, this, this idea, like people talk about, uh, I don't know, like government overreach or uh, I can't remember what the term they use for it is, but it's just not accurate. It's like, these are public lands that belong to all Americans. They're located in Utah, but you guys and me, like we're all just as much owners of these places as the people in Utah are. That said, local input on these designations, which basically would just, they just take existing public land and change the management prescriptions a little bit to make them more protective. Um, Does that mean like if I have cattle there, I can't, I can't bring my cattle onto that, that, that property anymore or i could before i mean what's the what's um, the downside for people who who live there i know all of the recent designations have grandfathered in existing grazing um you know if you have a, a mineral claim that is like a property right they can't take that away it's i think that it's just people who have this you know sort of fear of the federal government and they just don't want to see I don't know, you know, it's just sort of like fear of the unknown or fear that, you know, prospective future new grazing or new oil and gas development isn't going to happen, which I guess is accurate. But at the same time, it's not taking anything away that's going on right now, really. Um, but, you know, I think there's this myth that these decisions like, you know, like Yvonne Chouinard shows up and whispers in Barack Obama's ear and the next thing you know, half of Utah is a national park or something. And it's like, it just does not work that way at all. It's like the, you know, Bears Ears was designated after 
like years and years of public outreach down there. There was legislative efforts to protect the landscape that were kind of being led by Utah's congressional delegation who are all, you know, quite far right Republicans. And it was part of this broader, you know, it's part of this broader vision for the landscape, but they, you know, they had protected designations that encompassed a really similar footprint as the monument. So, you know, this is not, it shouldn't be that controversial, but it's become this like hyper-partisan thing. Basically. So what are the Republicans, like, I mean, I, I know what, I know how the, you know, the lawmakers from, from Utah feel about this, but what is their, what's their core argument to their constituents? I mean, are, I mean, what do they, how do they explain to them that this is, a, that this should not become a national, a national park? Well, first of all, it's not a national park, but oh, I, I think, yeah, yeah. You know I, mean. I mean, I think that their idea is that that man, land management should be dictated by locals. You know, that this it doesn't matter that these are national lands that we all own in common. That the people of Utah should be the ones that decide what happens there. But that's, I mean, but that's an academic argument. You, you know, what I mean, why should they be that passionate about it? You know, right. I mean, I think that you know, in a lot of ways, the the constituents and who's behind these things, like that's. You know, it's an academic argument in the same way that like all these ideas about, you know, they come from the Tea Party are, right? It's like people's kind of like fanciful ideas about what the Constitution means or about federalism. You know, I think that people get get pretty enamored about these things. But, you know, I think part of it is also this idea that, you know, extractive industry is going to make some big comeback. And I, I think that that's you know, I'm not sure how much reality there is to that argument, but regardless, it's like, you know, that dynamic, I guess, between, you know, protecting public lands and... It, it just seems like, from what you're saying, that there's, it seems ridiculous that there's this, this much anger and passion over this issue. You know what I mean? I'm not sure why someone would care. I agree. You know? I agree. I mean... I mean, if, if there's no downside, I mean, besides extractive, you know, you know, energy enterprises going on there, which like you mentioned, are, are not that likely anyway. Why has this become, I mean, the reason why Patagonia is leaving outdoor retailer, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, this movement to turn over public lands to the states and that, you know, some of those ideas about that sort of coming to fruition, like the idea that we're going to turn over all the national public lands to the states, that's... I mean, I don't want to downplay the reality of that threat, but I think that it's sort of morphing in a lot of ways into these ideas that it's just going to be like local control and we're not going to have, you know, sort of this national voice on land management anymore. We're just going to let, you know, people who live in these places make the decisions about them. And I, I think that, you know, locals always have a super important voice in land management decisions. And I think that that's, as it should be. And I think it's also sort of baked into the structure of how land management decisions get made. But, you know, there are people who just want to, you know, want power over the decision making in these places. So in previous shows, you were sort of a fan of Zinke. Are we still a fan of Zinke? Um, I'm not I, sure if that's the right word. Yeah. I hope I didn't ever give that impression. Um, I, I, my takeaway was that you could see worse choices for this position. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think in, in the realm of people who we realistically could have gotten from Donald Trump to become the secretary of the interior, 
he was as good as we could have hoped for. And I, I still feel that way, that we're certainly going to have plenty to butt heads with him about. And this is going to be one of those things. And it's it's disconcerting. So where exactly do we uh, write our comments here to Mr. Zinke? I'll put it in the show notes. Um, at theralliance.org. And I think it'll direct you to regulations.gov. Um, Little White Races last weekend. It was a good time, as always. I actually haven't been in... Uh, I don't know, probably three or four years because it's been so low. I've sort of found an excuse to be out of town for it because it kind of pains me to think about racing a little late at like two five or whatever it's been the last few years. But um, it was three eight solid on Sunday. I think we had maybe thirty five or forty five racers and five teams. Um, who was who was the winner? Uh, old Evan Garcia took it down once again. In what boat? Um, in the Gangsta. Um, Todd Wells was second. King Hash was third. Uh, yeah, Evan, like, I think he had, you know, a bit of a mistake at Island. Was kind of feeling down on his run. But, uh, yeah, I pulled it out regardless. I think Annual had a couple of big, big mistakes. Kind of went for broke. And, and where were you? Out. Uh, I was 10th. 10th? 10th. What happened? Yeah. I got old, man. But uh, I don't know. I'm just like having all these shoulder problems, and I'm just like pretty out of shape. Yeah. So I can't quite I do we enough. we talked about there. that. But, you know, honestly, like I'm stoked about it. I felt like relative to my expectations, I felt pretty good about my run. And What were you paddling? Uh, OG Tuna. OG Tuna. Hmm. It's not, not the best race, for it, but... Stays so on this, top well. What, what was your time? What was the winning? What are, what are the times? I think. I think Evan was like maybe at fourteen oh eight, and so, I think I was fourteen forty or so. So when are you? Could gonna, you? When are you going to get a longboat class out there? Yeah, could you race? About it. Could you get a wave hopper down that section of the river? I've never done it before. Oof. You'd have to be the man. <laughs> well, you maybe could do it. I couldn't do it. Wave hopper is only like halfway between a, a, uh, like a tornado and a real downriver boat. Oh, dude. It's, it's really hard for me to imagine getting down it in a wave hopper. And uh, you definitely could not get down it faster than you could. Yeah, you could take a stinger down that river, no problem. Yeah. Stingers, yeah, no problem. You could definitely race along boats. No We've problem. talked about it in the past. I think it's been kind of like a... If you can get a stinger down, no problem. Don't rule out the the wave hopper. Uh, can we not talk about wave hoppers? Can I would we love agree to, to no wave hoppers and no. I think SUV? the wave hopper is kind of a lousy boat in general, but it it's an interesting theoretical question. Could you get wave hopper down River X? You know what I mean. All right. If you Ugh, post, if, <laughs> if you post a, a a GoPro video of yourself taking a wave hopper down the Little White. Yeah. Free elbow pads from Immersion Research. You're going to need them. You should probably get them <laughs> in advance. <laughs> Come on. Somebody should do it. I would do it if I was it's, there. It's been, uh, it's been topo duoed. Yeah. I mean, seriously. I, that, I that, that's, 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 a, that's a... Have you paddled one of those two-person kayaks? Uh, I have. Yeah. They're not maneuverable at all. It still might be better than a wave hopper. It's got to be I, better than a wave hopper. 
No way. You guys are crazy. <laughs> Maybe. We'll have get, you paddled we'll we'll Andrew... paddle wave hopper before, Geltman? Have I paddled wave hopper before? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, First time I paddled one was the uh, Ohio Power Race, actually. It's like a stinger. I mean, it's it's like a stinger with a little little less rocker. Well, I haven't been out to the Little White Race since. But it doesn't. Do quit talking about wave hoppers, state. guys. <laughs> we are people are dropping off left and right. <laughs> All right. But here, something we did that was really cool was uh, when they uh, announced the results. They you know counted it down to the top four, and then instead of like revealing the top four results, we watched on split screen uh, the GoPros from all top, you know, all the top four people not knowing who had won. So it was like watching the whole race head to head. Super fun. Which was like super cool. It was like, I, when we started doing it, I was like, are we really about to watch like 14 minutes of GoPro? But <laughs> like as soon as it started, it was just like totally engrossing. And like everybody was at, you know, everyone who was at the party was like super into it and everybody's cheering. And it was like really interesting to watch where people were making up and losing time. And it was like a really cool idea. Nice. Definitely worth it. You know, a while back, Weld, I was telling you, I was like, man, in events anymore, you don't need a start time and a finish line. All you need to do is put cameras on people. Remember that? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, awesome race course. Great race. Big props for getting out there and representing for the hammer factor, Goldman. Hanging in there. <laughs> did, did you, you see you guys out here next year? Hammer Factor? Did you see your sponsor by Hammer Factor? I'd like to make did a not shout occur out to <laughs> Hammer Factor. I definitely had a few people come up and ask me if I was the guy from that podcast, though. So. Yeah. What do you say? No, 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 no. That's, that's you like you recognize the voice. What do you think? <laughs> uh, all right. One generation. What's next on our we list? Would just be like, what do you want me to sign? Quickly, quickly. I have to get to the starting line. <laughs> all right. What's next on our list, Weld? Let's talk Let's... about the Hammer Factor website real quick. Oh, we wait. Out. Here we go. This is, the, this is the hear about three minutes of bashing on Grace. Here we go. I want to hear about this. I'm going to step out for a second. You guys go ahead. The what? what? The silverback? I hear about the silverback. Let's talk about Grace's. Okay, so we have Green Green River Games happen this weekend. This was the reason I couldn't make it out to the – actually, it was because I had broken ribs. But we have a big uh, race, mountain biking, trail running, and kayaking on the Green River called the Green River Games. It was killer. We had like 150 athletes come out this year for all the events. And – one of our events is called the Silverback, and it's a mountain bike. It's a white. You have to run the Green River Narrows, do like a nine-mile, two thousand vertical feet of climbing um, mountain bike uh, lap, and then you do a, a super similar lap on a trail run. So all in all, it takes most racers about five hours to complete this this race. And uh, we had Erin Savage. She's our female champion. She's never lost this event. She set a new course record. And then we had a guy, Zach Frazier. Have you guys ever heard of Zach Frazier? He's a local guy. Used to paddle with Jeff West uh, quite a bit. And uh, anyway, the water was high this year, so that was a a big help. But he blew away the course record by like 10 minutes, 11 minutes or something like that. Was he in a wave hopper? No, he was in a he was in a proper well, long like boat. Up your alley. Where are you on this one? That's yeah, too What's hard to weld. Uh, <laughs> right up your alley. What I you know. Doing? I was uh, I was a Stony Creek fest with my uh, with my kid. 
paddling Stony Creek here in Johnstown. Anyway, it was it was hot. It was eighty seven degrees and sunny, and uh, it was killer. It was uh, it was. I mean, just anytime you have good water, Stoke is high. I mean, it's just like the little white race. Everybody was fired up, even if they were thirty ninth place or whatever you said, because they got to run the little white at good flow. You know what I mean? So it was really good. And then we had the Oscar Blues Enduro. I got some leftover beer from the event. I'm drinking right now. But uh, it was killer. We had like 80, 81 racers. We had eight different states represented. Represented A guy, Seth Kemp, won it. He's a two-time champion. The level of riding out there, it just blows me away. When you see someone who's really good on a mountain bike, just the things they gap, it's just like watching a really good kayaker, you know? It's just like watching Weld and his wave hopper. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was sweet. All right, bash on my website, Weld. No, I'm not going to bash on your website. I'm just going to say if you've been to the ham- – there is a hammerfactor.com, <laughs> and it is of marginal use. Uh but we're working on revamping it. Did you have to go to Vietnam to have fast enough internet to? Uh, <laughs> no, I have to do all that stuff from here. You can't. You can't do anything like that at IR because people start yelling and throwing stuff at you. Um, but we're going to have uh, the, the the website will be slowly built out, so it'll be of of use to people, and they can when they when you check on show notes, you can actually go someplace to see them. Yeah, we so. do get a lot of comments about that, so. Thanks a lot, John. All right, so audio. I guess the audio of the audio quality of our podcast is next on the list of things to address, but I have to pass it on to to you, Grace. Yeah, it's a real challenge. If we, if just the three of us did the show, we could make it sound top notch, um, pretty much turnkey. Yeah. But the problem is when we have to integrate callers. So we'll work on it. We'll see what we we'll see what we can do there. Um, and we have to deal with your internet service. So that's a big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. So, Lewis, do you want to introduce? Are we ready for our first celebrity guest or special guest? Brett Mayer uh, is a kayaker from the Potomac, Great Falls boater. Uh, he's a teacher in Northern Virginia, and he's been working on some kind of advanced degree program, and he's written this paper that he will explain to us about. The differences between how kayaking is portrayed in popular media and how people who participate in the sport sort of experience it themselves. And I thought it was kind of interesting. And we'll have Brett to explain more here in a second. To defend his thesis. Yeah. Again, yeah, exactly. This will be good practice for him. And it will be a defense. <laughs> Professor Grace and Professor Well. Yeah. <laughs> Um, first question I'm going to ask Brett is why did he single out Whitewater? And why did he have to bring IR into it? It's not fair. <laughs> I didn't want any, I didn't want IR in anyone's thesis for anything, <laughs> <laughs> especially under out of those circumstances. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot there was a what bit of fight in there. <laughs> How's it going, Brett? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. Man, you look Uh, super professional. Yeah. (laughs) That's how we (laughs) look here. uh, You in a classroom? 
Well, yeah, yeah, I'm in sort of a, the science library in the uh, science offices at Episcopal <laughs> High School. Yeah. Nice. Well, well, welcome to the Hammer Factor, Brett. Yeah, thank you. Good to be on. Good to be on. All right, so I just gave these guys a little bit of an introduction, but I'm sure that I did not do your your paper justice. So do you want to maybe just start us off by tell us a little bit about yourself and this uh, this piece that you've written, your theories for us? My, out. my theories. Um, yeah, sure. Prepare so. yourself for Grayson Weld's dubiousness. <laughs> yeah, that's perfectly fine. Uh, they wouldn't be the only ones. Um, yeah, I mean, I started working on this, um, you know, it's almost three and a half years ago now. Um, I was working um, at a school up in New England, paddling, uh, doing, I'm an environmental educator and kind of outdoor educator. Uh, that's my profession that I've been in since I've been probably about 24. Um, and kind of, you know, my trajectory through, you know, the paddling world kind of led me to start asking some sort of introspective questions about what the heck I was doing out there all along and kind of what the point was, just sort of this question of, of why we go paddling. And I started wondering if kind of some of my experiences were shared among some of my friends. Um, and I started all this by, you know, in one of the, I started, uh, well, I pursued a grad, I started, decided to take a graduate school program at a school in Arizona called Prescott. Um, and the degree is in adventure education. And, you know, my original idea was I was going to go out and do this program in adventure ed and kind of, you know, do some cool, awesome things outside and pick up some certs. And I had no idea what it really what I was getting into and kind of the sort of academic level of seriousness um, of this world. And so it really opened my eyes to looking at adventure in a very different context than I had, um, you know, up to that point in my life. And so one of the early courses I was taking in this program was called Spirituality and Adventure Education, kind of looking at spiritual, you know, experiences that people have when they go on adventures and then, you know, sort of how to try to incorporate and set the, set the stage for some of those experiences for participates, participants in programs. Um, so I had a final project, so I decided to do a film project, um, and I was like, I'm going to go out to... I had a trip in the Grand Canyon to self-support coming up uh, with some buddies. Um, so I went to the Grand Canyon with the intent to film a documentary called Why We Go. And I asked each of the guys on the trip to define nature, adventure, risk, and spirituality and kind of weave them into um, a narrative about why, why they go paddling. And so that was sort of the outset of this trip. And, you know, we kind of go into the canyon uh, you know, as, as you know, it's a, an amazing place. Um, so I'm, I'm going in and kind of in this place in my life where, you know, I'm a new dad, I'm at this boarding school in New England. You know, I'm originally, my wife and I are from, from Virginia, Maryland area, um, I'm really based on the Potomac river, great falls. And so I'm kind of away from home, a new dad, and just sort of in this really kind of uptight New England boarding school environment. Um, you know, so not in the, uh, I'm just sort of already in an introspective place and then asking these questions about paddling. And so I go into the canyon um, and on the 10th day of this trip, everybody wakes up and 
tells me, all right, Mayor, we're ready, you know, to kind of give you our, our definitions and our kind of our story and kind of share this idea of why we go. And I'm like, great. So we wake up, everybody kind of pours their heart out on camera. Um, you know, and some of the guys are just, you know, talking about all the reasons they go paddling for friendship, for connection, for adventure. And they're talking about defining an adventure and adventure is when you can't, you know, you can't just call a helicopter up and get out um, when you want to. You got to see it through to the end. And so it's kind of like this eerie foreshadowing, you know, unbeknownst to me at the time, you know, but eight hours later, I was, you know, calling a helicopter from a sat phone uh, because my, my best friend died um, later on that afternoon after we ran lava. Um, you know, and so then a whole series of chaotic events sort of ensued in the next two days. Uh, we spent the night on the beach with them, um, you know, and had 50 more miles to go before we before we made it out um can i so back sort you of, up for one second and just ask yeah. what happened there I'm, I'm i'm sorry to pry it no that's fine so i mean and that's you know i can i'm happy to share uh it's hard to talk about actually uh even still even though it's been three years but you know it's sort of um we got to we got to lava uh we all ran lava and then there's the tequila beach stop afterwards that i'm sure you guys are familiar with um, and this was, you know, I didn't know what the tradition was when we, you know, got to that point. Um, but you know, everybody, there was a bunch of other groups in the mix. Everybody kind of took a celebratory shot. Um, and we were a group of nine and six of us were, were pretty tired and kind of eager to get to camp. And so we put on and it's a flat float, uh, to Whitmore wash. And so we kind of floated down to 188 and three of the guys kind of hung out in the back and, you know, I think they just sort of got away with, uh, got kind of caught up in the moment. Um, and unbeknownst to any of the, us, they started, you know, hitting a, hitting a little bag of cinnamon fireball. And, you know, we were, we were all in camp and kind of wondering where they were. And we kind of heard them laughing, but we were kind of all in a screen of mesquite, so we didn't have a direct line of sight to the river. And they came floating past, and one of the guys um, who was on the beach, he kind of shouted back. He's like, hey, Drew is swimming. And, you know, it's just kind of flat, moving water. And we're like, oh, what, what do you mean he's uh, swimming? And um, so we were a little confused, but they seemed like they were just kind of horse playing and having a good time, which is what we assumed. And then about 45 minutes went by and I kind of just had this kind of feeling where I was like, I wonder what, just wonder what's going on. And we went and looked and we couldn't see downstream. We kind of walked around the bend and I saw a boat upside down and I saw one guy pulling the boat back to shore. And I was like, all right, that doesn't make any <coughs> at all. And I couldn't see the other two. Um, and so anyway, we, we kind of, we hiked downstream, kind of had to cross this big scree field. And we kind of thought we had an all okay on the head. And so we went back up and I was like, I told everybody, I was like, we better break camp. I don't know what's going on, but we better get back down there and kind of see what's up. And so everybody's kind of packing up and I got in my boat and I floated halfway down. And as I was halfway down, the guy, um, one of our buddies that we had sent to go communicate with, um, you know, the guys down there, he waved me in and he was like, uh, you know, Kurt's, Kurt's dead. 
Um, yeah, sorry. It's pretty. <clears throat> it's a pretty heavy story. Well, and I'm, um, I, I'm sorry to bring that up. I don't want to. I don't want to. Yeah. Make the show about that, but I felt like. Yeah, no, that's all right. You know, I figured it would it would come up. Um, I mean, that could sort of, you know, it could be a whole thing in and of itself. But I mean, just sort of this is this is sort of how I got started on this this idea of kind of digging in. You know, it wasn't just sort of the nature of the events that that happened, um, but it was sort of like the intentions of the questions that I was asking going into the trip. Like there was a sort of like I kind of threw these questions out out there and got. You know, I got answers that I got got answers and got them in a way that I could have never, never imagined. So it was sort of a it was a crucible of a different kind. You know, I think a lot of people, you know, when they start whitewater paddling, you know, some people that might be kind of what is appealing to them, kind of testing their limits, testing their metal. Um, obviously, of course, in addition to having fun you know, and challenging themselves in all these ways and community and all these parts of what makes paddling so great. Um, you know, and I think for me, you know, I was always sort of looking for that kind of crucible type experience to really test myself. Um, you know, and I had, you know, a lot of great adventures, but this was, this was something that was, you know, unexpected and kind of a crucible of a different kind that kind of really made me look deeply at, just sort of the community and also, you know, the reasons that we do what we do and kind of, I think, you know, sort of the popular mythos, um, you know, within adventure sports culture. So, so tell us about your paper. What, uh, what's your thesis? So my thesis basically with this paper is basically, um, you know, I started looking at common media representations of extreme sports. Um, and finding, you know, a lot of the ways I think that certain companies, you know, portray extreme sports, they, they tell a very, it's a very kind of myopic view of, of our world. You know, it's sort of a lot of the, the imagery that we see is sort of, I think, predicated around kind of, of, of risk. It's sort of risk obsessed in a lot of ways. And risk is a so you're, you're talking of, about like immersion research here principally, right? <laughs> yeah i mean our super bowl ad notwithstanding i think our ad campaign has generally been very uh, low-key and more family friendly <laughs> yeah obviously Fair. you know any of these things you know my whole my whole motivation i think really has become to kind of really bring some more introspective conversation to the forefront of, of paddling communities here and elsewhere. And I think anything that I say, like, I would never be, you know, arrogant enough to think any of my theories kind of like hold weight for anybody, but just sort of, you know, I think the purpose is to sort of share some of the ideas and kind of, you know, maybe some of what could be true for some people that are out in the community. And it'll give, hopefully, you know, people just a moment to kind of think about some of these things and what they're doing the next time they're out on the river making a decision or, you know, how paddling relates to their lives or, or whatever. So the you idea know. is, let me maybe see if I've gotten it correctly, yeah. is that there's this sort of broad uh, sort of popular marketing of 
adventure sports, like what you'd see like in a Red Bull ad or something like that. And it sort of spins what people in sports like ours are doing is this sort of man versus nature. Yeah. I think do, there's do bro bra undertaking yet in reality, most of us don't really experience it that way. And there are people sort of coming into the sport who you see maybe like in like an introductory kayaking class or something like that. You yeah. think that they're going to go out and, you know, go run Palouse next weekend and it's going to be, it's going to be sick, brah. But that's not really what it's about for most people. And there's sort of like a disconnect there. Is that kind of the idea? That's pretty accurate. Yeah, that's pretty much, that's pretty much the idea. And I think that, you know, again, it doesn't hold true in all situations, but I think I think these re representations of the sport are out there. If you look at people that have participated for long periods of time and what the research in the field shows, you know, people that participate in whitewater kayaking and adventure sports, their reported experiences are very much in contrast with this kind of narrative of conquest and domination over nature that we see. And so, you know, my concern is that some of the ways that the media popularizes notions of, of what our sport is and what these sports are is in conflict with what reported experiences are from individuals who are on the inside. So kind of that outside versus insider perspective. And I think the other thing that happens is that insiders in the community, especially when you're first starting out, if, if you haven't done any of those things yet, you, you have the potential to be sort of influenced by some of those, some of those types of images and experiences because you have no experience. And I think some of the terms that we use in our community, like, you know, a beater or something, you know, those types of things. I mean, I think that's, you know, we're getting at those things. Some of the people that are kind of elderly or kind of more experienced in the community. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> the John Weld types. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. I knew it was going to come to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, like we've had articles written about various kayaking exploits we've done by, you know, people like the Washington Post or USA Today, and when you read them, you're always struck by the sense that the writer did not understand anything we were doing at all. And it was basically a version of clickbait, you know, where they're trying to, you know, romanticize at the very least what we were doing and, you know, sell a, a, a group of insane kids doing something stupid, more likely, you know. And then we always had the, the, the running joke was the last thing we wanted to be was covered in Outside Magazine because... It was either going to be an extreme event or they, they totally take interest in you if someone died, basically. If someone got killed, you could be assured that Outside Magazine was going to call and want to, want to do a story on it. And when we did our trip to Baffin, that was the first thing they asked. They said, well, did anybody die? And we said, no. And they said, well, then we can put you in the, in the news briefs at the beginning. That was kind of the long and short of it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, there you go. I would love to put that in, in what I'm writing. That's a yeah. perfect, that's a perfect, perfect example. But people, in the, I mean, the, the participants in the sport know that too. I mean, it's kind of a running joke that, that that's not accurate, nor is it what we do, you know? Yeah, no, that is a running joke. I think it's a running joke among people that have been around long enough to understand. And I think, you know, sometimes I just, I think I wonder about people that are entering the sport, you know, and we can all see that they just, I mean, there's things that they just don't know and they don't quite, quite get the whole, the whole picture yet. At the same time, it's like, I think there's been some sort of like much improved general media pieces. Like I thought that all of that coverage in the New York Times about those guys climbing the Dawn Wall last year, like that was pretty, was pretty good. You know, like I think that you could tell that there was, you know, you could look at the comments and people were like 
kind of focusing on this like danger aspect of it. But I thought that like when they told the story, they did a good job of explaining that, you know, this is not really like a dangerous undertaking. It's really much more of a, uh, you know, a technical challenge in a beautiful place, but not something that's really like fundamentally that dangerous. And I guess it's been cool to see. I feel like every once in a while you see something in popular media where you're like, ah, this is, this is getting better. You know, it's like in some ways it's like almost like these, sports like ours have become i don't know just more normalized or you know you know i don't think kayaking has become insanely popular or anything but i think that there's just much more general understanding than there used to be i don't know does that ring true to you guys at all the barrier uh, to entry for kayaking as far as i can tell is flipping over (laughs) you know in current with your head underwater that's that's where most people are like no not interested but, hey, Gracie, a couple of years ago, you were doing this peak adventure thing, mm-hmm. which I think deep down in its, in, deep down in its heart was a thinly veiled Ponzi scheme of some sort. I'm still not quite <laughs> sure how you're going to get money out of people for it. But there was also some surface, you know, talk about uh, a similar theme here, right? Yeah. What was peak adventure exactly? Yeah. Well, Brad, are you, you're familiar with the adventure paradigm, right? Yeah, you know, and so what the, you know, without getting too specific, basically what the adventure paradigm says is when you're, and man, I've forgotten a lot of it, but there's uh, recreation, there's adventure, there's peak adventure, then there's misadventure, John Grace adventure, (laughs) where you write him a check. (laughs) Yeah. Jesus, I'm talking. And 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 then there's uh, tragedy. I believe it is. Yes, yeah, exactly. And so basically, what it kind of says is that when you're right on the tip of peak adventure, imagine it like a, you know, like you're like an RPM meter on a car. You know, you're when you're at peak adventure, you're you're redlining, you're maximizing your experience, you're getting the most bang for your buck, the most return on your time investment right before you drop into misadventure. And so that adventure paradigm is something that is kind of associated with a lot of activities we do. And unfortunately for a lot of adventure sports and whatnot, the fun isn't really being had until you're starting to peg the meter a little bit. And I mean, if you, if you paddle with Tom McEwen, you're deep into misadventure before anyone's having fun. <laughs> <laughs> I could tell from first ex- many first-hand experiences that that is exactly how he feels about it. And <laughs> kind, of, same, same. Kind, of, kind of a long time ago, and I didn't finish my story because I never got the check well, was that <laughs> – was that – there was a website by the way involved with like peak adventure tv or something you you don't always (laughs) (laughs) man you know what i'm retiring from the show i'm I'm done i'm done you guys take it from here anyway (laughs) it's like like the kayaking gawker there's just a string (laughs) of kind of interrelated websites (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> it's the curse of blogging, you guys. That's right. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> unintentionally, when you're having an adventure, you are trying to get the meter as far into peak adventure as you can, even if that's not your decision starting out. 
you want that. Adventurers are craving that, and some people's meter goes a little further than other people's, but um, that's just part of what makes adventure adventure. Am I saying that right, Brett? Yeah, there's a there's there's that sort of there's that peak adventure experience, and then sort of concordantly, there's also this guy Mahalay Csikszentmihalyi. If you guys have ever seen kind of that book Flow, it's from 1990. But his whole theory was the same guys that were kind of putting forth that peak adventure experience while they were doing that. This guy Csikszentmihalyi is writing about this idea of flow, and it's it's that same idea is that there you know if you look at a graph, there's there's skill and challenge, and what you're saying is you know that where you're kind of pushing the meter is basically the challenge that you're taking on is just slightly, like just ever so little bit above where your skill level is. So, you know, that's kind of where the progression happens. Like you're taking a, a new risk, taking a risk by doing that. And if you push it too far, it has, it has the chance to, to go badly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just sort of same, same idea. And that those, you know, when we say things like we're in the zone, you know, or we're feeling it, or you're in the, like, that's, that's all basically, you're kind of in this experience of flow. And I think, you know, that's definitely something that keeps people seeking adventure time and time again. You know, in those experiences, people are all wired differently. So those flow experiences are going to be different for each individual. You know, what, what you, how you experience a flow experience or what it takes to get you there is going to be very different than, you know, someone who's not interested in kayaking or, you know, the barrier to entry is if you're rolling over and like, that's just not going to be a non-starter. People can experience flow, like in their day-to-day, in their work environment, writing a paper, playing music, all kinds of different ways. But is there, is there something intrinsically wrong with people pursuing kayaking for that purpose or for advertisers latching onto that? Well, I don't no, think, I, I don't, I don't think yeah, no, I'm not saying wrong. that at all. Yeah, I would never, I would never say that. And I would, you know, nothing what I'm saying. I mean, I, I, quite the opposite. I think kayaking is a great thing. And I think, I think, I think what I'm trying to eventually say, you know, once I sort of finish everything is, you know, I, like, I would love to see the better side of our, like, I want to see the kayaking community kind of always sort of thinking about like what their intentions are when they're going to the river so that when we're kind of communicating what the community and the experience is all about back to others that we're always sort of doing our best to show the better side of ourselves because in these adventure experiences i think you know we're uniquely positioned to do things like public advocacy for rivers or to even even when it comes just to sort of advocating for like how valuable it is to get out there and connect with nature and some of the positive psychological benefits of those experiences i mean we live you know, the generation, you know, I teach, been teaching for the past 12 years. I mean, every year, like kids' attention spans seem to be getting short, you know, shorter and shorter. And they seem to be, you know, increasingly disconnected just even in 12 years, you know, sort of anecdotally, you know, the, the degree of disconnection with, with nature is more and more. And so if kids don't have a connection, you know, you can't come to know, love and protect like what, or you can't love and protect you know, what you don't know. And so I think, you know, that's where I, that's where I feel like it's important to really talk about these things because it's sort of our experiences being able to kind of realistically portray those things in a way that's inspiring others to get out there and kind of connect in whatever way works for them. You know, it might not be a class five river. It might just be a walk in the forest, but I feel like the more we can, can sort of decrease the focus on the risk 
and kind of focus on some of those other things, I think we can use what our communities are doing for the greater good of kind of protecting the places that we love and play. Let, let me say, I, I really like the paper here, and we're going to have to do a whole show on Cumberland Falls, or Cucumber Falls, because that's hilarious. <laughs> well, when the boys came into work that day, were you just like, yeah, way to crush it. Yeah, I, thought it was, I mean, first I thought it was kind of neat. You know, I, I mean, I hadn't seen the video uh until later i didn't see the video till later but they both they all explained to me it didn't it wasn't as bad as it looked but it looked pretty bad <laughs> anyway <laughs> one thing i mean the I crisis would, the, look, i mean the crisis that i'm in or, or the situation i'm in is that I the only the reason i paddle well the only reason people paddle with me is to watch me swim <laughs> and i can say almost without exception the only reason i paddle with other people is to watch them swim <laughs> Particularly, uh, that is why John Weld goes kayaking to watch. Yeah. That, well, when was the last time you swam? That's weird, dude. That's weird. All right. It's been a couple years. The next one's going to be a doozy. Where was the last place you swam? I've uh, been Great Falls, high water. Um, I know I've swum since then. I can't think of it offhand. Was this Where were you? I, I have to think about it. What, what, what decade was this in? <laughs> 40s, late 40s, <laughs> 50s. So a couple things I want to say about your article here, Brett, before we, yeah, before sure. we move on from it, is you reference a lot of things in this. Um, let's see, a couple things. Okay, number one, when we talk about getting youth engaged in the sport or whatnot, mm. um, unfortunately, if you if it takes showing something extreme or something that relates to them or something that their friends is, are going to think is cool on Facebook and it gets them involved in the sport and sharing it with people, as long as you know, I don't see that as a as necessarily a bad thing because they're you know a lot of youth unfortunately they don't have the experiences to for those deeper things to resonate with them. It's just going to go in and on one ear and out the other. But if they see something that is attracts their eye, get a little bit of eye candy and they get into the sport and that's the avenue to get them there. I don't see that as a negative. Um, yeah, I agree too. I, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I think I would say and all the more reason for, I think people that have been paddling for longer periods of time who kind of can see beyond just that that they're sort of acting as mentors and guides in the community. And so that as these kids, if that's what hooks them in, great. But then there's a, there's a larger narrative there that they're able to tap into, you know, as they're trying to find their way. And also there are, I see a lot of companies, um, it, and forgive me if I'm a little defensive of this because there was a long period of time when I was kind of the whipping post for people talking about this kind of thought like I was bad for the sport or things that I was affiliated with or whatever um, but there are a lot of companies right now you look at like the stories that Yeti is making with a lot of their films NRS has done a great job of this of making some more in-depth films that talk about various things yeah. um, Weld has his site Z website that has got some very in-depth things that are going on. Um, there's like Werner paddles does a whole lot of just talking about instruction and basic safety. And they spend a lot of time and money kind of putting that message out there. So 
I just think that and when you reference, there are things like Immersion Research and Cucumber Falls, but there's also <laughs> other things that kind of maybe balance that out. So anyway, yeah, great. I mean, a lot of work here, man. This is awesome. Yeah, thanks. I mean, yeah, and I agree, of course. Um, I mean, I think that's a good point, too, and that's probably something that I'll eventually include as sort of examples to the contrary you know, media that kind of does the opposite. And I, I think NRS has done a great job and um, a lot of other folks that are putting more kind of contemplative pieces out there, which is good. Well, does anybody have anything else for Brett? Is there anything else you'd like to add here to? I get, think this could go on for hours. If this we could careful. go on for hours. This is great. Yeah, it could go, it could go on for a while. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've gotten a chance to talk to I mean, I interviewed Tom McEwen, Risa Shimoda, Steve Graybill, kind of some local paddlers. I interviewed Jeff Calhoun um, and Mariah Heaney. Um, and I think, you know, sort of this idea of participation, motivation in the sport over time and how it changes. So this kind of paper that I kind of passed along to you is sort of the initial kind of thought process. And then I went out and kind of did my own research and sort of kind of looking at, you know, I did like a four hour interview with each of those individuals and then I kind of condensed them into like a five minute film to kind of capture the overall tone of what they were trying to say. Um, and it's interesting, I think, you know, maybe what's true for female paddlers isn't necessarily true for, for the male paddlers. I mean, it's a small sample, obviously, so whatever findings there might be, you know, isn't definitive in any way, but it's just sort of suggestive, you know, um, I don't know. I, there's, I think there was sort of evidence um, in at least this guy Steve Graybill's story of kind of going through this experience of kind of being pulled into the sport, like very much like what you're saying through this, this idea of wanting to be really good at something, to challenge himself, to kind of take risks. And it was kind of all about that for a long period of time. And until he has this experience that kind of shows him, he kind of realizes what the consequences might be. And that might be a kind of a common theme, I think, among, among folks is that as they go along and they kind of realize what the consequences are, that kind of changes their narrative a little bit. Um, Shane Groves is another guy I've talked to, Adam Johnson, and they all kind of said similar things that, um, you know, it was about competition. It was about some of these sort of more ego-driven aspects in the beginning of their paddling careers. But as they kind of moved forward, it became much more about just getting out with their friends, getting in touch with nature on a regular basis, um, and just kind of, you know, just enjoy, enjoying it, I think. Amen. Yeah. And I, and I think that's a neat thing. And I think there's aspects, you know, I think that's kind of like the lesson that the river teaches you, you know, over time. And it's not that competing isn't great because it is, and it's not like all of those other things aren't, aren't important. Um, but I think just if you're a new person in the sport, you know, one thing I might say is just to realize if anything else, like however you feel right now when you're 16, 17 or however, when you're starting, you know, that your idea and kind of the, your connection to paddling is, is going to inevitably change over time. And, you know, maybe that's something that you just think about in terms of the decisions that you make on the river. And it's just another tool to kind of have in your back pocket, you know, the same thing as like a safety rope or or whatever. Cool. Run stouts, get money. That's it for me. Yeah, run stouts, get money. <laughs> watch, uh, watch your buddy swim. Cucumber! <laughs> <laughs> Plan 
plain and simple. Uh, thanks a lot, Brett. Adam. <laughs> Brett, is there a place that our viewers can uh, follow your work or see some insight? I, I know that you, this is not a published piece yet, but I'm sure there's going to be some people who are going to want to follow uh, what you're doing. Yeah, I've got um, I've got a site um, that I started a couple months ago. It's uh, brettmayer.exposure.co. Um, so that's out there. I've got to make it a little bit easier for folks to find, but I've kind of written some just sort of personal essays on some of these things, my experience in the Grand Canyon. Um, and then there's also a piece that, you know, it's got a bunch of reads right now. It's called The Kid, but that's been kind of widely circulated around the community, um, it seems. Um, and that's kind of about a student that I taught to paddle and kind of some of his, you know, our relationship on the river and just some of the trials and tribulations and things that he's, he's kind of gone through over the years as a young paddler, you know, which has been another insp another inspiration to me to kind of pursue this work. So, well, Very cool, man. We should get uh, Adam Herzog, who's running SiteZed, to see if he can put, publish some of these things. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to put some stuff up there as well. Great. <clears throat> All right. Well, thanks so much, man. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Brad. Thank you guys for having me on. Yeah. Thanks, cool. man. Pleasure. I'll talk to yeah. you soon. Later. You guys there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. That was cool. Cucumber Falls. <laughs> was that really that big of a deal? I guess it was, huh? I thought it was. I just thought it was. A, right. I just thought it was some goofy waterfall you could run with a bunch of sticks in it. It was just <laughs> what it was. It was just like the music of the video and the delivery, and it was just awesome. That's all. Yeah, I'm gonna say about that. I, I was like, "Is this for real?" Like, I, <laughs> yeah, Billy Hearn was. Billy uh, Hearn. Man. I love it when Billy Hearn gets on these public <laughs> venues and puts words in my mouth. That's great. Uh, <laughs> all right, we don't have time for viewer mail, guys. We're gonna have to do that next week because we're already at an hour and four minutes, and we haven't got to our celebrity guest, Pat Keller. So let's. Uh, yeah. Yes, we have to do that. Let's see if all we those can, guys uh, posting hammer emojis are gonna be excited for our upcoming conversation about speed pockets or whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah. Pat Keller just launched, you know, Pat, let's just, like you were saying earlier, Lewis, Pat is two for two in boat design. So. What do you mean two for two? What's one's brap. What's two? Green well, boat. One was actually the green boat. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah. So I was That's quite saying a, quite, my, a, quite a freshman effort there. Yeah. I'm a little dubious about this boat, this boat, but Pat gets I told you, a real benefit I, of the doubt with, with I the told you it's not a nine foot wave hopper. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna pan Pat. it. Pat, are you there? Yeah, what's up, Beth? Hey Pat, you're on with Lewis okay. and Weld. Welcome to the Hammer Factor. That's a CNN calling hey guys, in the background. How's it going, <laughs> how's it going bud? <laughs> Good man. Uh, thanks for bringing me on. Pat Keller. What makes you think you could design boats? Because you're not a Shane Benedict, you're not a Robert Pearson, you don't have the the, uh, the chops. What gives you the right to think you can start designing boats? Like, how does this happen? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Well, I think you've known me long enough to know that uh, I've got a good long history in whitewater kayaking. I love it with all of my heart, and I think I have a good handle on boat design one from the many many years i spent playing with little tiny wooden boats in the creeks 
yeah. um, from about you know age 10 until really now <laughs> when I'm 30, 30 years old. Um, most of my time was spent thinking about kayaking or playing with those little wooden scale models or drawing up designs for boats. Some of the old piranha guys will vouch for me that I sent in uh, redesigns of the micro back when I was, I think, like 14 or 15 years old. So I've been all about it. Um, I also do have a history as far as designing boats. Um, I designed the Dagger Green Boat and then came over to Liquid Logic and uh, designed the, the Brap and then worked with Shane a little bit on the mullet. And now um, I've got a creek boat that I'm really happy with. I can't wait to share with everybody. It's got some cool features that have come from that history of paddling boats, watching the little wooden boats in the water, seeing how the water affects certain shapes. And uh, I'm really excited to get it out there and see what everybody thinks. I mean, what before we get to the, the Delta, is it Delta V or Delta 5? How do we say that? It's the Delta V, but it's kind of a double story because Delta V is a uh, change in velocity. Right. Um, where if you read it with a little bit of a Roman numer- numerical mind, you can read it as Delta, as in Delta brainwaves, deep dreaming, kind of recovery, that sort of thing. Five. So dreaming of class five. So I, mean, I saw that. I was thinking five. fun with and... Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's six one half a dozen the other. We we're calling it the Delta V. So what you? I mean, this is this is nerdy, but what what do you use design? Like, what kind of software or tools do you use to design a boat like this? Uh, just out of curiosity. This is the fun I mean, part, man. I I spent I think uh, uh, five months on it, and yeah. it's all hand shaped. So all hand shaped. Why I love working with yeah. One of the reasons why I love working with Liquid Logic is that we have the capacity to do some CAD designs, but we usually save that for the seats where we put a lot of like surfboard style love into the boats by hand shaping them. And, uh, this one, uh, the Delta V we actually started with the Hefe Grande platform. So not our, our, not only are we recycling foam and not making this whole new foam thing and paying money and, and using virgin foam to, to produce this thing, we use, the recycled boat that already has a good platform, already has a good midsection, and I only wanted to do a few minor adjustments to the Grande to come out with this, what I wanted to design, this new creek boat. But then once I got in, there was a new idea and a new idea and a new idea. And it just kind of hit me like flowing through a little, uh, like working on a painting or something. It was just more and more that I kept thinking about that I wanted to try. And uh, since the boat has been put into prototype form, we got to test out some of those things and I'm really ecstatic with how it works and can't thank I mean, Liquid Logic and Shane and all those guys enough for giving me the time of day and giving me the chance to kind of take it and run with it. There's something to that because you know we have a really expensive pattern making software, but sometimes there's no beating just getting a pen and some cardboard and designing a pattern by hand. You know, you just get a better exactly. feel for the garment that way. So let's talk about displaying yeah, displacing hull versus planing hull in a creek boat. What, what do you think? And where, how did that? How did sure. that? I mean, how did that come to be in the come to pass in the in the Delta V? Well, uh, up to this point, there seems to be two distinct camps. The right. kind of one is. I want to say right now, one is and wrong the, and one is right. <laughs> the planing hull camp is the wrong camp. I'll give you a clue. But go ahead. Well, uh, I, I mean, <laughs> some areas I agree, but for for it depends on what your application is. 
if you're in the big water environment, planning hole might help because that sort of scenario you're trying to keep straight and keep your momentum going as you're dealing with boils and cross currents. And that's where that planning hole being able to slip sideways can be of real benefit. Now, if we're talking about creaking and bouncing off rocks and over waterfalls and such, I strongly believe in the displacement hull design as it's just less things for it to catch on. If you go bouncing down something sideways, you don't want that last hit to catch your rail and flip you, power flip you down into the landing. There might be rocks down there. So I'm a firm believer in having a nice round displacement hull to keep it from doing anything you would, that would surprise you or that you don't want to have happen. But what I think is really cool about designs moving forward is you can have a little bit of a mixture. Like with the Delta V, we put a very flat section of about two and a half feet long by about a foot and a half wide underneath the paddler's seat. So you have a little bit of a flat area that you can maneuver with like you would with a plating hull, but you keep all the benefits of that nice smooth edge that's not going to try and surprise you and flip you onto your head. So Grace, you so paddled I think there's, this boat. There's, there's been we, two camps, but yeah. um, there, it's just, it just depends on your application and what you need to use it for. So Grace, what you paddle this boat, what do you think? It's is a pad full of shit or is this uh, the real deal? No, it's the real deal. It's a super stable boat. Um, I got in it and immediately <laughs> felt comfortable. Um, uh, you know, it was a day out on the green when, uh, I got in the boat, ran everything, felt fine. So to me, that's what uh, you need in a, in a in a boat that you're going to be running class five in. It, it it needs to be something that you don't have to learn. Would you oh. say this is a boat that's going to be? You know, we talked a couple episodes ago about the Machno versus the Nine R in terms of usability. I mean, where do you think? I'll tell you the difference. The difference is the feel of the kick rocker because I've paddled both the Machno and this boat and the Delta V and. There's something with the kick rocker, and and I don't know if it was if it's that brat feeling that when you get it up and you're going fast, it kind of pulls in a second gear. But it's got a really cool hull. Which Pat on the website, there's no pictures of the hull. Is there a place to find a picture of the hull? No, that's a great idea, Grace. We didn't really take many photos of the hole right to be honest it was because the prototype was kind of beat up so the photo the, the boat that we were taking the model photos of right. that's just what we had at the time and we didn't really want to flip it around and go too much into it but we do have the mold it arrived today this morning so we'll be able to crank a few out and get uh some updated photos on the website for you guys to check okay, out okay cool because let me let me let me just go through a couple comments here from some of our listeners get pat on the show what is up with the turbo boosters turbo booster pockets question mark question mark question mark and so we had like four or five people talk about these deck lines and whatnot and then uh awesome. one person's like why no picture of the hole is it oil? well we're putting turbo we're putting turbo booster pockets on all of our dry suits for 2018 <laughs> and pat you're gonna be here <laughs> yes, well. at a later time so <laughs> We'll pick this up, and, uh, but but let me back up to my original That's Turbo Pocket uh, TM. By the way, let me back up to my original thing. So, right. Can you just before we get into the Turbo Booster Pockets, can we just talk about the hole for a second? Can you can you talk about the hole because it, there's it's not it doesn't have a typical creek boat shaped hole like its profile. 
Absolutely. My pleasure. And one of the areas that I've spent the most time back there in R&D working on this boat is to get the hull exactly right, just how I wanted it. Now, with the BRAP, we brought in the kick rocker, which is uh, a little tossover to slalom, where those guys have the most agile, the fastest, and quickest reacting boats on the planet. And I wanted to try and utilize some of those features that hasn't really been tapped into the whitewater realm or the, the, the plastic boat realm as much and utilize it to, to make our boats perform and act like a slalom boat. And this is where the development of the Delta V really got fun for me because I was able to take and run with whatever type of boat, really creek boat I wanted to make. And there's the whole trend toward fast nine foot long boats which is great. And I think it's great for the sport. I think the racing is going to push us into the next environment, but I wanted to back up and build a boat that was able to slow stuff down that you can kind of approach drops and have the time to kind of think and correct before you go off. So I wanted speed and, um, maneuverability from a slalom boat, <clears throat> but I wanted a very creek boat, creek boat, boater friendly, really, really hard stuff, friendly haul. So what, is, all. what I did is you wanted, wanted everything. It all, right. So <clears throat> to get what I wanted to get out of it, I flipped it over, flipped it, the grande plug over and I just spent multiple days, no machines, no nothing, no like electric sanders. Cause I wanted to take my time and sand it down to right where my eyeballs were saying, boom, this looks good. So I started with the kick rocker and I brought all that up rolled it off so it wouldn't be so it wouldn't land too harshly and flat um and then with the bow i took a nice chunk out of the jefe grande's bow rocker if you look at the jefe grande from the side it goes the rocker goes out 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 past the feet and then there's a big lump where it starts to move up uphill that's great for landing off waterfalls and makes it soft but i wanted a little bit more uh, lift and I wanted a little bit better fairy feel where the grande as soon as you start poking your bow out into the current to make a ferry that lump is going to load up and try and yank your bow downstream and point it downstream where with a smoother kick rocker going up similar to what we put into the brap and similar to what we have in the remix you can keep your bow lifted a little bit to over that mean piece of current that's going to try and rip your bow downstream. So that progressive smooth bow rocker combined with the kick rocker that you can then get your weight over the back. You can lift your bow as you're doing a ferry and keep it out of the, the yanking current, if you will, and make moves really quickly, really efficiently by using micro movements of your torso. So, so let's suppose I'm Joe consumer out there. And I was had my heart set on a tuna because I mean that's what Evan paddles and I have to have that. <laughs> but now you're kind of throwing a wrench in the system because <laughs> you just introduced Damn. this thing, and now I'm like, man, what do I do now? Because Pat Keller designed this boat, and John Well loves the Brap, and this sounds an awful lot like the Brap. Uh, but <laughs> at the same time, it's Evan and he paddles the tuna. How would you sell this boat to that customer? Because you know that debate's occurring nationwide right now. That is. And the thing I'd say to that type of person is try out the new Delta V, try out the tuna, sit, 
sit them down side by side and see what works for your skill set and what in in your pattern of movement. Everybody's a little bit different, as Bruce Lee often said. Take what works for you and eliminate what doesn't, and then move forward. I wanted to market this to more of the guy that may be coming from slalom, that may be coming from full beginner, that wants something that's really easy to paddle, that's going to take care of you, that's going to land things really soft, that's going to just be predictable all the way through. Now, I've gotten to paddle the tuna, and it's a really good boat, but it is wide. It lands pretty hard, and uh, no doubt it is a tried and true design, but I wanted to throw in something into the monkey wrench there that would – have something to toss back at those guys and put anybody who wants to excel their and, and boost their skills. You like that little plug <laughs> to the next level by just taking the boat that is really agile and handles the way kind of you'd, you'd expect it to. Basically, I just wanted to make a downhill mountain boat. All right. So turbo booster pockets go. That's right. Now, now the elephant, the elephant in the room, the booster pockets. So that was a really fun part of the design. Shane and I were talking about the kind of overall look and overall shape. <clears throat> One of the things we definitely agreed on all the way across, we agreed on many things, but the, the biggest one as far as changing the shape from the Grande to the Delta V now was to shave some material off of the stern towards the far back grab bar. And now what that will do is by shaving it off, you get a little bit of the remix feel. And the remix is really, really good at boofing ledge holes, loading up on the stern, and then boosting forward. Now I'll go in, into a little bit more of that theory in a second. As <clears throat> when I was growing up, I was always playing with the wood boats, as I said before. And one of the common themes that I started to notice when you're just looking at boats whether it be paddled by a paddler or just sitting idle going down this creek and grabbed at the bottom is when you hit a hole you have a moment where your bow climbs and your stern loads up with the water that's still coming down the ledge and then the little boost forward is going to happen in almost any boat so whether you're in a stinger whether you're in a creek boat whether you're in a like play boat that boost is going to happen if you load up too much on the stern, it starts to create a backender. But almost any sort of ledge move, you have a moment of that where even just a little bit of water lapping up on your stern helps to create the boost. Now, when you're watching paddlers, they often will put in a, a power stroke right as they land a waterfall or land a ledge to help propel them forward. And it does, but the boost is, also, is always there. So what I wanted to do is take some of the remix theory and then try and utilize that water pulse as you hit the hole to create even just a smidgen more um, horsepower going down downstream and getting you out of that feature, getting you past whatever's worrying you. So one morning I went in, was just trying to think about how we could maximize that load pressure to get the boat to continue to propel downstream no matter what the paddler did. And I came in starting to think about engine swirl chambers. I've been a fanatic for diesel engines and diesel technology. Some of y'all may have known, but um, I find it absolutely fascinating how they design in swirl patterns to fit as much air into a cylinder as they can. They use turbos and superchargers and all this sort of stuff. And I was 
starting to try and apply that to the kayaking world and see, well, let's see how much boost can we get from that little tiny pulse? And you stick a, the boat in the water and you spray a garden hose on the stern and it moves forward. So the theory is there and it's just how to paddle so you can load and unload that little spring or the load up and spool, if you will, the turbo boosters. But it becomes a really fun aspect of paddling this boat where you're not just thinking about how's the hull going to do, how's the bow going to go through something. I find myself when I'm paddling this thing often thinking, all right, let me get my bow through something, let me get my stern loaded, and then let me time that boost when I'm hitting the hull and the stern is loading up. I promise you, you feel it in this thing. And it'll help shove you forward where if you time a forward stroke, you get even more. So with water, because we're paddler powered and gravity powered, any little bit of help goes a long way. So I wanted to put these in here and uh, take it and run with it. And in testing, I was absolutely ecstatic with how much it influenced each little ledge booth and each little landing. So we left it in the design and I'm really, really happy to, to get it out there and get people in it and see what they think. So what do you think? I know there's a lot of memes out there uh, regarding the turbo, the turbo booster pockets. You betcha. It's the new hot thing. Yeah. (laughs) I want to try it and I love it. (laughs) Well, hell yeah. Well, Delta. So are we going to see multiple sizes in the Delta V here? Is this uh, just a one size or what's, what's kind of the plan here for this, this, uh, this model? We're currently eyeing up doing a smaller one. I feel like the lightweight paddlers is a market segment that that kind of needs to be hit and looked back upon these days um, for young bucks coming up, for ladies in the game and wanting to push their own limits. Um, so, you know, my recent collar bro- collarbone break kind of slowed that one, but uh, we're continuing to move forward with the prototypes for that. And unfortunately, it wasn't able to come out around the same time, which is optimal as far as sales go, but we will be having one soon. We think the 88 is going to be plenty size for 90% of the guys and gals that are wanting a larger boat. And uh, we're going to keep the Stomper 90 and the, the Flying Swirl 95 on as far as limited runs for those guys who just need a really big boat. So as far as sizing goes, we're trying to hit the nail on the head with just two models. And uh, that's what we're looking at right now. But um, looking at it, for sure going to do the 88. I would love to see like a 77 or 73 size. And uh, we'll see how it goes. How's your, how's your uh, collarbone, collarbone doing? Uh, thanks for asking. It feels really good. Um, I'm continuing to do P- PT and rehab exercises every day. Um, I just got done with a big round this morning um, and uh, did a little paddle down here at Bonavista yesterday. So it's feeling good. It's still sore. It's coming along, but um, there's definitely some gaps as far as bone growth that need to be filled. The bones are healing well, and I'm, just, I'm trying to stay on it and <clears throat> drink bone broth and chicken, eat chicken cartilage and every, everything I can think of. But uh, <clears throat> these things just take time, and this was a really gnarly break. I'm actually really lucky to not have any complications from this one because of the angle at which the shard was pointed straight down into my pectoral muscle and uh, the depth that went down there. It was actually really, really close to my brachial artery. 
Yeah. Well. <laughs> so all in all, I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy and, um, got to give liquid logic kayaks and Shane Woody a huge shout out for sending me out here so I can get the Delta V's into the hands of all our new dealers. And thanks to, um, CKS main street and online. Thanks to <clears throat> Tony at uh, four corners and confluence, all our new, all our new, uh, dealers. It's a real pleasure working with you guys and getting everything out here and creating some stuff for the new Delta V. All right. We make the smaller one. Uh, don't make a crazy size cockpit. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah well, I don't we want it, it to fit the large keyhole spray skirts that you guys make. Cause they're just yeah. absolutely awesome. And that seems to be a good kind of average size. But no, inch. I'm not going to make the cockpit longer than the boat. <laughs> Thank you. 88 inches circumference. That's what you want, including the rim. Have you fixed your sizing chart yet, Weld? Eight zero. 88. 88. Were well, you ready to do that? Let me know. I'll, I'll I'll make the best rim that you could possibly put on that boat. It'll be dry as a bone. Sounds good. Yeah, I'd love to work with you, and we'll uh, we'll bring Shane in and try and get it all nice and dialed. I think yeah. they're going to work on it just a little bit as I'm out here in the west, but. Uh, yeah, I would love to get super seal as far as dry as a bone. That's always good. So, Pat, if our listeners want to want to follow the Delta V um, progression and when it comes out of the mold and whatever, where should we send them? Check out Liquid Logic Kayaks on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, you can also follow me, uh, Pat Keller One, on Instagram and Patrick Keller on Facebook. Um, I have an athlete page, but I don't use it as much. I feel kind of weird about posting pretty often, so I'm kind of more of a lurker. But um, we're stoked to share everything with you guys as uh, as everything comes out. And when we get a couple of boats out of the mold, we'll be posting them up and creating some stoke because just after that, we'll be sending them off and uh, filling them orders. We're stoked cool. with uh, all the pre-orders that we got. Can't thank everybody enough and looking forward to it. If it's anything like the Brap, uh, it's going to be a great boat. The Brap is, I think, one of the best plastic boats ever made, if not the best. So, Thanks, John. Appreciate that. I think this one is even going to be better. Well, Excellent. You're two for two at this point with the green boat and the Brap, Pat. So, uh, you know, Delta V, check it out. Delta V, it's going to be awesome. All right, Pat. Well, we'll see you, and thanks for coming on the Hammer Factor. Thanks, Pat. All right, thanks, thanks, dude. Appreciate y'all having me and taking the time. Like, mate. Do you think he's full of it with that, with that, uh, with the turbo boosting pockets? Do you think there's something to it? He's kind of making some sense there towards the end. I don't know. I was kind of buying it. It's kind of buying it too a little bit. You gotta you know, check it I out. To, I tell you, whenever can't, you, can't, you can't deny the brap. I mean, you cannot deny the brap. That's a phenomenal effort right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also think that making the tip of the stern thin is like crucial for power boats in big water because like when you hit big braking features kind of like diagonal features sideways that you want to kind of drive across the river with if the tip of the stern super big then your bow just drops immediately because you can't kind of like push it into the wave at all and like i think that's ruined some otherwise passable kayaks for paddling in big water i think having that that thinness in the stern is is key well, what hit like, me was remix, but like that boat, or like even if you look at like the Mamba or the Tuna, they get pretty thin at the stern, and then you look at like something like the Shiva or the Flying Squirrel, and they don't do that, and then they're like terrible big water boats. There we go. Okay, man, this has been an uh, epic episode here. Yeah, we're back. We're you know so. 
We gave you an hour and a half of love on this show. We're gonna skip rants and raves. I'm just gonna. Oh, I got a, I got a rave. Oh, well, I got a, I got a. You got a rave? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm just gonna rant about flying with kids, and we could just move okay. on to your rave. Well, you want to say something? Go no, ahead. That's it. I, I ranted. That's us. I think we all know what that means, yeah. especially those with our kids. Yeah. It's hell. I'm raving about the Stony Creek Fest. Oh, okay. To last week, you know, I'm comparing and contrasting to the to the Cheat Fest. Now, the Cheat Fest has evolved into a multi-discipline event, and it was very mighty this year, which wasn't their fault at all. But it's fine for what it is. However, Stony Creek Fest was last weekend. It's in the Stony Creek, just outside of Johnstown, PA, kind of a local run for us here at IR Class Three. But uh, what a delightful festival for paddling! I mean, it was packed full of paddlers. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Uh, I bet there was 300 people there uh, camping, staying for the whole weekend. Um, so I don't know. Very impressed. The first time I was there, and I'm definitely going to be back, and IR is going to have a bigger presence there next year for sure. So that's it. Is this a new John Wild we're hearing from? Like 300, 300 people, that's a good thing? There's a hint of positivity <laughs> here. I mean, it was – I don't know. I fell for love, man. It was it was neat. I, and, you know, I had my kid there, and we, he was kind of – he did Stony Creek, which is like the perfect kids run, you know. And So I don't know. I was uh, – Starting to realize kayaking is such a terrible sport after all, you know? Oh, man, I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> this just made my day. I'm going to have a second beer. I had a uh, – <laughs> I was approaching peak adventure maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Lewis? I got nothing. Come on. You should Good. rave about that four-camera GoPro concept. I did wear a GoPro for the second time ever this weekend. Like, uh, was that like mandatory? Yeah, that was the timing for the race. I, I, I fought, but I didn't want to be too much of a pain about it, so I, I, I caved. This is the is man ex- who I gave him a free camo dry suit to wear to test it out, <laughs> and he returned it because it was camo and he didn't want to be associated with the military. This is a man with principles. <laughs> so... I don't know. Taking on a GoPro is <laughs> – you must have swallowed some pride there. All right. There you have it. Hammer Factor <laughs> episode. I knew I'd get you back for that one day, and I finally did. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. All right. Well, until, uh, until next week, Hammer Factor Love, we'll have a new website up and running. Well, it'll be better than it is now. My gosh, what a scene. <laughs> Bye, Monday. (laughs) All right. All right. Bye, guys. Later.